Welcome to Parallel Quest. This is a podcast where two friends talk about the stories we love and share the personal stories of the impact they've had on our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Cody Haggard, and alongside, or maybe more accurately said, across the internet from me, my great friend and co-host, Zach Butler. Zach, how you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Had a good day of writing, pretty productive, ready to bang out another one of these been a good day so far. How have you been, buddy? I'm doing well. I uh, I don't know if anybody noticed, but in that intro there, I was kind of like getting tongue-tied and stumbling <laughs> a little bit. So if it sounded like I was slightly inebriated, I am not. I don't drink. So don't worry, guys. I don't get, I don't get wasted in podcasts. Uh, I know some people do that and it makes for entertaining content, but that's not me. Just got a little tongue-tied there at the beginning. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if nerves were getting the best of me. Uh, I'm interviewing a you know an, an up and coming author here <laughs> oh, stop. in a couple of minutes, so I don't know if I was just getting a little nervous, getting the jitters, but you know you're too kind. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Now that I got through the intro, that's the that's the hard part of the podcast. That is, yeah, <laughs> that is the one we struggle with the most. <laughs> it is. It's always tough. Uh, not stumbling and getting tongue tied and all of that nonsense. <clears throat> oh, <man>. <laughs> uh, but but tell me tell me what's on your mind, man. Let's start with some stories from the week for those of you who are just joining us, uh, which is all of you. But if you're joining us for the first time because of this episode, we're doing things a little differently today. Zach is releasing, or by the time this podcast comes out, will have released his very first book called Nightmare at the Fair, and we're going to have a talk about his journey in making that. Hmm. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about the stories from our week or things going on in life. And so typically we go, we tell stories from the week, we break down one of our favorite stories, talk and share our own personal experience with that. Today we're changing up the formula a little bit. But uh, Zach, tell me about these surprise parties. Yeah, man. So I've been a part of two i'll say one and a half surprise parties and i'll explain the half here in a sec but all right so i have there's a lot of birthdays in my life around this time of the year for some reason a lot of people born just in the fall and so i feel like we do a lot of parties and now that a lot of us are getting you know towards 30 and it's a new decade and so usually have a bigger party than you would at like 27 or 26 um we've been throwing a little more surprise parties lately i feel like and so we i was actually i was talking to my wife about this the other night because we threw a surprise for, party for one of my buddies and i mean he generally was surprised it was great we had the balloons we had a nice spread we had some cupcakes it was a good time had everything that he liked and leah asked me she was like well do you think he was genuinely surprised and i was like well but being honest, he probably was just happy that like he got a party. And mm-hmm. I I don't know if he was I mean, he was surprised, but I think he was just more happy that he was there with his friends and stuff. And so I think for Leah, the point of the party is the surprise. She wants to see the reaction. She wants to see the look on your face and the the gasp right. and like the oh my gosh. But my buddy didn't do any of that. He was just like, Whoa, this is cool. Kind of mm-hmm response and to me that's kind of more my response and so anyways we threw so then my father-in-law he turned 60 this past week i think and we threw 
a we didn't throw so much a surprise party, which is why I kind of called it a half. We basically they're out they were out for the weekend. They got a hotel room and Leah went and decorated their hotel room. It was really nice. She got some balloons that said 60. She did up the wall with like a bunch of pictures of all of us with him and just like times with the family. So it was really, really nice. It was really well done and he really liked it. But once again, I was thinking, and I didn't get to see his reaction this time because I wasn't there when he first went into the room. But I was thinking again, like, man, dude, like, I wonder if he was surprised in the in the way that Leah wanted him to be surprised or if he was more just, oh, this is touching because this someone did this for me. And so I wanted to get your take on this. Like, how how do you react First of all, have you ever had a surprise party, and how did you react? I have had a surprise party. Um, it was my so so. This is where it was weird. Um, I'm glad you I'm glad you're bringing this up. I think surprise parties are a fun idea. I think that they can be really neat. They can be really fun. But for me, I'm kind of like you. I I don't really know how to act. Like, of course, I'll be surprised, but I'm not the guy. All right, so so. We have people who, for their business, their own personal business, on the internet will make reaction videos and just act like an absurd human being <laughs> over watching, like, a, a movie trailer. Mm-hmm. Nobody acts like that over a movie trailer. Like, like I think the most realistic <laughs> right. reaction, like, I would have over a movie trailer, I'm going somewhere with this. Don't worry. I'm yeah, going yeah. somewhere <laughs> with this. Is you go to the movies with your buddies, you see a movie coming up that, that you are excited about you nudge him and you're like dude that looks pretty sweet like that's a yeah that's a normal human being reaction on the internet we have people who are like screaming (laughs) and shedding tears over a trailer a trailer which is marketing meant to get you excited most of the times full of lies like (laughs) oh dude i want to stop you for one second because you reminded me of a movie trailer. I was in a theater one time, and I think the biggest reaction I've ever had, not me personally, but just experiencing someone else like watching a trailer, was just some guy at the end of it. I think it was for like Civil War. Just went, oh, yeah, that's that's a good movie. <laughs> like, I think that was <laughs> the best Oh, reaction. yeah, guys, that's going to be a good one. But even then, I thought, I was like, oh, pump the brakes there, guy. Like, that's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> so so if any people who do YouTube or anything out there and you're a reaction video person, I you know what? Great. If that's your business model, amazing. I I just hope that your audience knows that you are acting and <laughs> for your sake, I hope you're acting. Yeah. And so if so not, I don't want to go see a movie with you, that's for sure. Like and I think for me, that's the same thing with surprises. Like a a smile on my face, a thank you, genuine appreciation would be kind of the extent of it for me. I'm not going to scream or I'm definitely not going to shed tears over a surprise party. Mm. Now, if it were something like like these videos of parents coming home, veterans coming home and surprising their kids, that's totally 100% way different oh, than yeah. a surprise yeah. party, you know? Um, way different than a surprise party because the, the, the thing is, is too... A surprise party isn't going to surprise you all that much unless it's like really far away from your birthday or anniversary or whatever. Because because you kind of are expecting that, well, we're going to do something. Something's going to be done. 
and my significant other is wanting to take me to this mysterious place that I have no interest in. Okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, so it's, it's kind of hard to set up. But anyway, I had a surprise party for my 21st birthday, which first it was kind of weird because it was in March and my birthday is in February. <laughs> while we were home, uh, I had come home for like some short college break. Another reason why it was interesting was because it was at a time where like only we had a break, but none of my other friends who Mm. were on college break or anything were at home. So a lot of people who were at this surprise party were like my parents, friends and people from church whom I I love and appreciate. But like a lot of my close friends and stuff weren't even there for it. So it was kind of interesting, but it was nice. It was it was a combined effort from my mom and my uh girlfriend at the time who's now my wife um and so so yeah but i was i, I was kind of more like what the heck what's going on like mm-hmm. what yeah what yeah doing this? my birthday was last month you know we we could all hung out then yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i was thankful i appreciated it but yeah, yeah. man I, I genuine reactions i just think that first of all for you that's got to be like they can't expect much from you in the way of acting and and in surprises just because your birthday's already gone. Like, right. Yeah. It's exactly. gone. Like you're like, we did this already. Like I'm already 20. I can't act excited. Yeah. Because- I'm already smashing bourbon. Every day. <laughs> right. 21 I'm already guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've already made it. But like the second thing is just like, I'm the same way, man. Like I, I don't, I, I genuinely appreciate it, but I feel like any more from me than just like, Oh man, like, Thank you guys. Just thanking whoever did it, who's like the mastermind behind it all. But like, I'm not, I can't like freak out or scream or like, I don't know. I just, I can't do any of that. And so we were just talking, but we and I were just having a discussion. And I don't think, I think she's, she's a lot more expressive than me. So she shows the appreciation, whether or not, like it's something big or small, you're going to get a big reaction out of my wife. Cause she just loves that kind of stuff. But for me, I'm more just, I'll take you aside. I'll thank you for the party. I'll really express my gratitude. And that's like, that's my way of really showing how much I like the party. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I, if, if the audience has a, a thought on this, I would really like to hear what their thought is on the, the surprise party yeah Uh, reaction and what kind of person they are because i mean i'm gonna have my 30th coming up i don't know what's gonna be happening with it i think well i mean by the time this comes out i'll already be 30 so we'll we'll see how it goes (laughs) you old man yeah that's right i know man i'm the young one on this podcast Yeah, i know the baby here (laughs) by like three months uh yeah (laughs) well tell me tell me about these uh these political sign battles you got going on, dude. We're coming uh, into the the political season. I mean, we're already in the political right. season, but we're coming into the election season here. So, I mean, things are yeah. getting heated up. So, I hope you're all right. So, we are recording this before the the uh, the election, and reason I think this is funny is because I am in I am a type of person who. No matter who I'm voting for, I'm not going to put your political sign in my front yard. <laughs> I'm going to make you work hard for my vote. I'm not I'm not helping you get anybody else's vote. No way. You got to go do that work on your own. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so um anyway, on my commute home, I 
drive the same way every day. And there's been this construction, so I've had to go a different way. And I think I've talked about the construction before on this podcast, but on this different way, I pass a lot more residences. I normally take the highway into work, but I've been going the scenic route, as you might call it. Mm. And so a few months back, this was m- many months back now, and and they these people had a huge in front of their yard, gigantic, I, I can't tell you how many feet by how many feet, but let's just say rather large Bernie Sanders side. Mm. And you know what? Props to him. I, I love a good Bernie supporter, man. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the Bernie supporters because they are, you know, they're all about government altruism. And that's amazing. I think that's nice. That's great. Good ideals. Mm. Practically speaking, really hard to pull off. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's what we have to be realistic about. And that's why he's not the presidential candidate right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, big Bernie Sanders sign. And I don't know, maybe I'm just making this up, but I felt like it got like slightly bigger every day. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, a couple months go by and then the coup happens. The coup happens and the Democrats, they turn their backs on Bernie and they're like, Bernie, sorry, dude, you're old. Your ideas <laughs> are a little too radical to get, you know, these, you know, 50 to 60 year old votes we really need. So uh, we're going mm. with Biden. All right. So everybody drops out of the race. It becomes Biden versus Sanders. And then, you know, Biden just blows him out. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because Biden gobbles up everybody else's votes. And so the uh, the political coup happens. The Bernie sign stayed up for a couple of days, and then it was gone. Then, then it just disappeared. And uh, hmm. then George George Floyd happened, and uh, Black Lives Matter sign was out, like, instantaneously. Yep. Mm-hmm. Instantaneously, man. It's like, okay, you know, Black Lives Matter. We we all know that Black Lives Matter. We, we, we agree Black Lives do matter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, was and, it as uh, big as the Bernie sign? It was slightly smaller than the okay. Bernie sign. Okay. But but a couple more days go by and on top of the Bernie San- on top of the Black Lives Matter sign comes Biden Harris 2020, baby. Oh, yeah, baby. Um no, no, it was first Joe Biden and then they switched it to Biden Harris after he nominated uh Kamala Harris. Okay. Hey, good. They're and, covering they're covering every you know, step of the political so, <laughs> the so political I'm starting to think like here. How much time do these people have to be making these signs? Because these are huge signs. These are these are hand painted signs. These are not printed signs. Mm. Maybe they are, and they just look hand painted. Wait, they're hand painted? I do. I was thinking they're running down to Kinkos like once a week, printing off signs. But they're, they're on these? they're on wooden slabs. So maybe they are like nailing them onto wooden slab. I don't know, but they look painted. I'm just saying mm. they look painted. Could be wrong. And then, sure enough. The neighbors across the street must have just had it. They're just like, you know what? We're done with this. The biggest Trump 2020 <laughs> sign across the street comes yeah. up like two days later. Yeah. And it's not even it's not even facing the street, right? Like the the uh the Black Lives Matter sign, the Joe Biden sign, those are facing the street. So as you drive by, you see the sign. The Trump sign is just facing the neighbor's house. So they're across <laughs> the street from each other. 
clear message there. Yeah. Every time that neighbor looks out their window, they see like large as day Trump 2020, you know, the American flag going everywhere. I'm pretty sure out there one day I saw a couple of, uh, you know, revolutionary war and civil war cannons Mm -hmm. out there. I don't know. Yeah. Could be fabricating that, making it up. Um, I think I saw him, you know, parading a, a Hummer in the front yard one day. I don't know. There maybe, you go. Yeah. Bald eagles <laughs> flying by. Bald eagles flying by. <laughs> they got, got the raptors flying over and then their jets. Standing outside, arms folded with the USA bandana on their yeah. head. <laughs> but man, dude. dude clear message so- sent to the neighbor. So so funny that you know people really got into this, uh, got really into their signage, and uh, I just thought it was funny because it was just something I slowly saw play out over a number of weeks, right? Many many weeks, many months, and I just the day I saw that Trump twenty twenty sign go up, I just drive by, I just start laughing, like <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's hilarious. Dude. They must not like each other very much. You you come across. You've come across something, though, that I don't think many people get to experience in their lives, but it's so great when you do, when you just, you're not even an active player. You're just a a bystander in a small neighborhood battle, like just some (laughs) passive-aggressive neighborly battle. Like, you don't get to see that too much unless you live in a neighborhood and you're really paying attention to your neighbors, but for the fact that you got to see this escalate to, like, (laughs) just unbelievable proportions it's just it's something i don't think you get to come across much in life but my my question is did did the biden harris people did they retaliate at all did they get a bigger sign did they like you know put like a a sign on the roof like for helicopters what they started doing is they must have i don't know if their sign budget ran out or anything but then they just started to put all of the the smaller biden harris signs like all down the street right like started to infiltrate the neighbor's yards a little bit and you know i i feel like they kind of talked to their neighbors and the neighbors like all right we'll give you a small sign we're not doing one of those big ones guys okay like i don't want to like all that money yeah on the big signs (laughs) We're going to start, yeah, doing the smaller side. Dude, and the smaller signs to me are more obnoxious, regardless of who the candidate is, because it's never just one sign here, I support this person. It's like, we're going to cover the yard and the house with it, just in case you missed the first 16 signs. We got more, just so you know. Like, I always just think it's like, it is a bit much. Like, you're going a mm-hmm. bit overboard with 12 signs in your yard saying <laughs> whatever you're voting for. I just, I mean, if you're one of those people, like, uh, yeah, tone it down a little bit. I know. I, yeah. I see who you're voting for. It's okay. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't need 15 it. signs to tell me. I got it the first time. Uh, and, and so the, the, also the narrative too, that plays out around this is like, you got your person on the right, you got your person on the left. And then there's a majority of people just driving down the middle, mm. driving right in between those two signs. Mm, yeah. And it's just like, that's how I feel, man. I'm like, I'm driving down the middle of the road and I'm just witnessing this thing and I'm laughing at both sides. Exactly, <laughs> man. Exactly. <laughs> it's a great picture of how, <laughs> how most of this country is right now. <laughs> and that's the thing that's so sad about the state of the country is I feel like people don't laugh at their own side enough. Oh, like, I know. Like, you got to laugh at both sides. It's both both the things that come out of both sides are hilarious. Like this is this is so funny. Mm. You got these two like super duper old guys <laughs> running against each other like <laughs> old enough to be in nursing homes. 
and <laughs> or probably and in our country, man. I know, man. <laughs> Dude, but I mean, it just makes me think. Like, I could like getting into your seventies, man. Like, you gotta think if you're close to that right now, you're like, I could be president. Like, if they're doing it, like, I maybe not president. Maybe that's a bit much, but you you still got a whole life ahead of you when you're at 70 it seems like like these guys are doing a sure, lot yeah. and it's certainly not like i know i think the old way of thinking has been like once you hit 70 it's like kind of your twilight years for some people but i mean these guys they're running they're trying to run the country one of them is i mean you, you got a whole life ahead of you <laughs> I, I mean the i i, I just want to say for anybody who's who's older or getting close to their 70s out there i i I'm not trying to age shame anybody. I'm just saying like a lot of people I talk to in life who are in their sixties, getting close to retirement are just ready for the wind down. And so mm. <laughs> you got these two yeah, guys yeah, who are exactly. like, I'm re-upping, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I know you want, some people are getting ready to just sit on their porch, have a nice cup of coffee, enjoy the yeah. day. Nah, these guys are like, what else can I do? What else can I do? I mean, it's, it's impressive really. Yeah, they just must get bored really easy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. You know, this uh, the um, we've been laughing a good amount here, right? We're doing some laughing along, talking about politics, and, and you know, one thing that I want to point out is that when I watch a movie, like it kind of in the same way of surprise. Like I'm not a guy who's going to overreact to surprises, but when I watch a movie and I kind of chuckle and I go like, that's like equivalent to me, like rolling on the floor laughing, right? Like if a, <laughs> if a movie gets me to make an audible, like chuckle, like that, that means, that means that that's really, really funny. Cause there's a lot of things I'll watch in a movie. And I'll think to myself, I'll be like, Oh man, that's pretty funny, but I won't laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know yeah. how you express yourself. And it all depends on the group size too. Like if it's if it's a larger group, I feel like laughter is more contagious in a movie setting or in a live show setting. Um, oh, dude, that's anyway. a good point because the other night, sorry, keep I, I want to just on. stop you there for one sec because I saw. So I watched Hubie Halloween. Oh, this is perfect. I'm about this. Okay, I'm, this is perfect. Keep going, dude. Okay, good, good. So. I, but I watched it, so I watched it in a setting that I normally don't watch movies in, okay? I watched it outside on, one, like, this big blow-up screen. It was cool. It was like, you know, the old days you'd watch in your backyard with your friends. I don't know if you ever did that, but, like, my neighborhood would do that every now and then. We'd all go to some guy's house and watch it on a blow-up screen, and it was cool because we'd all be outside. So I watched it in that setting, though, and, like, first of all, I just want to say I like Adam Sandler. I appreciate his movies, but if I were to watch like an Adam Sandler movie, like a happy Gilmore, like a water boy, I'm probably not going to audibly laugh. I'm probably just going to like register the humor. Think in my head, like you said, Oh, that's funny. And then move on. But I found myself like leading the laugh. Like, you know how, like sometimes you'll hear someone laugh and then you'll join in. Cause it's like, okay, it's yeah. okay to laugh yeah. at this. Like I was leading the charge on these laughs, man, but I wasn't really finding it terribly funny, but I just felt like I needed to add to the experience. <laughs> and so I was <laughs> laughing at stuff that like was funny, but in my personal, like at, in my house and my 
if I were watching it with Leah, I probably wouldn't have laughed out loud. Like I probably would have just been like, oh, that's funny. But I felt the need in a group setting like that to lead the laugh charge. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but it's it for me it was a new it was new territory. It was uncharted waters because I'm usually not the one to lead the charge, but I felt like, you know what, I gotta do it because it's a Adam Sandler movie and it's probably not gonna get like too many audible laughs. But I don't I could be wrong. There might be some Adam Sandler fans listening. But that that I just wanted to interject there with that because I just recently had that experience. Yeah. Okay. So that's a perfect that's a perfect interjection there because this was this whole transition was inspired by the fact last night Haas and I watched Hubie Halloween. Oh, and, nice. <laughs> and so I'm watching this movie, and there's a couple times where I like laugh. I laugh out loud, and you know, then Haas laughs, or Haas will laugh, and then I'll laugh, and, and it was kind of it was fun, and and. You know, we try to, when we watch a movie together, kind of go about it with like a lighthearted feel. If it's a comedy, try to laugh. And if it's not making us laugh, we'll just turn it off, right? It's mm-hmm. not doing its job. But, um, but you know, it was funny because last night, I'm watching this movie. I laugh quite a few times. But all the meanwhile, in my head, I'm telling myself, this is a terrible movie. Like, this movie... <laughs> this movie is is not good. Like, this, this movie is objectively bad, but it's funny because I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, let's see who's made this movie. Adam Sandler's in here. Kevin Smith's in here. Mm-hmm. Rob Schneider's in here. Steve Buscemi's in here. I feel like a group of friends got together and like, hey, guys, let's just make the stupidest freaking movie that we can. And mm-hmm. <laughs> Dude, I feel like that's with every Adam Sandler movie, though. So Recently, for sure. Okay. I mean, it, it's. I feel like even more now recently because it's like this guy's in the in, – the total comfort zone his career he doesn't have to make movies yeah he's probably yeah. just doing it now because he's like yeah man, i'll just continue to get rich and I, yeah i got I'll make movies with all my friends <laughs> exactly yeah 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 but hubie halloween is a movie that i thought was kind of terrible but also terrific at the same time because it made me laugh at just some really stupid things and i probably wouldn't have liked this movie as much if i would have paid like 30 bucks for my wife and I and go see this in the movie. I've probably been like, oh man, this is 30 bucks. Get out of here. <laughs> Never get that back. However, the fact that, you know, I've already got my cost sunk into Netflix and just turned it on. It was like, oh, yeah, that was pretty enjoyable. It wasn't bad. You know, I'll probably will never watch it again, but that, you know, that was a good time. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of liked the comedy horror. I, I, I liked the comedy horror that it still tried to be scary, right? Like scary movie and mm-hmm. the parody horror. They don't really try to actually be scary at all. Right. Halloween still tried to have those traditional elements of horror, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, that led me to the segment I want to talk about today is for us sharing something that's terribly terrific. We did this once a long time ago uh, where I tried to do a movie pitch of a Rocky Rambo crossover. Oh, oh, and yeah. uh, I got some glowing reviews on that segment, but that's not what we're doing this time. We're, we're talking about a story that we just kind of look at and we're like, this is kind of bad. But at the same time, I just really enjoy it. Right. Yeah, like right, I, right. I can't explain why I enjoy it. I can I can objectively say that this is bad, but I can subjectively say that I like it, you know. Mm-hmm. So so why don't you go ahead and get us started off with something you think is terribly terrific? Oh, man. All right. So. I, mine's going to be controversial here, I think. I think I'm going to step on some toes here. I'm going to probably make some people upset, but this is my conviction here. 
So we're just going to go with the broad stroke of Will Ferrell movies. Now, before you start throwing stones here, let me explain. All right. So I think Will Ferrell is a funny guy. I think he does some really, really good characters. I think he does some really funny characters. I think he's was great on SNL. I think anytime he's a guest in any movie or show, he's hilarious. But when it comes to some of his movies, I think he's probably like 50-50. If he is like mm-hmm. the producer, the star, maybe a little bit of the writer, I think his movies are like 50-50 success rate. I think movies like Blades of Glory, Semi-Pro, and even some parts of the other guys – I don't want to say all the other guys because the other guys made me laugh a lot. But I think that was oh my main- gosh the the beginning scene with the Rock and Samuel. Dude, I, but that's the that's what I'm saying. That was going to be my point. Was like <laughs> that was funny, and I think everything that Mark Wahlberg does is funny. But I don't think Will Ferrell is <laughs> you funny. Shot Derek Jeter. <laughs> you shot. I mean, that's hilarious, dude. But that but that wasn't Will Ferrell, and that's my point. Right, right, right. Is that like I think. Will Ferrell, there are movies that are objectively bad that Will Ferrell makes, but I think people who like these comedies do not want to admit that Will Ferrell makes bad movies. Like they will defend it. They'll be like, well, this part was so funny. And I'll be like, I agree. But I think there's a difference between Blades of Glory and I think like a movie like The Other Guys. I mean, I just, I know I just said some parts of The Other Guys, but I think. I mean, I think Blades of Glory semi-pro can't really compare to movies um, that, like other movies that Will Ferrell has has fronted and done, like um, Talladega Nights. I think that's a hilarious movie. I also think the movie, uh, the Step Brothers, hilarious. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. But I will say that I still enjoy will ferrell movies i still will watch the other guys blades of glory and i'll laugh i'll laugh knowing that it's bad and that like they're objectively bad movies but i'll still enjoy them so i think i think the overall point here is that listen will ferrell is funny he's not comedy genius all the time and i think there's movies that are bad that we still will enjoy but i would like to just get it on the table that we all think it's bad well, I don't know. What do you think, man? <clears throat> I, I mean, I think there's certain roles that Will Ferrell plays really well. Um, you know, the I think a lot of people would probably go to his best movies probably being Step Brothers, Anchorman, and Old School. Those are the three that yeah. stick out to me of just where Will Ferrell's character just really, really adds to the comedy, right? Yeah. Like. Ron Burgundy is probably Will Ferrell's funniest character because because he is just this total egotistical, unaware narcissist. And it's funny because we all know somebody like that. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the funny thing about Ron Burgundy is he's a parody of somebody who we all know. We all know someone whose head is so far up their butt that they they have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, but I think recently, though, I've really enjoyed when Will Ferrell kind of plays a little bit of the straight man. Like, I I love the dynamic of, uh, I think he and Mark Wahlberg are hilarious together. Oh, yeah. Uh, the other guys is funny. 
Uh, I also really like the dynamic those two had in Daddy's Home. Mm. Um, they have a. I never saw the second one, but I like I like that dynamic when Will Ferrell kind of plays the straight man. I don't know if you ever saw um, the movie with he and Kevin Hart. I'm trying to remember. Oh, what it's called. Get Hard. Get Hard. Yeah, Get Hard. Yeah. I wanted to say Walk Hard, but I was like, no, that's the that's the um, the other one with uh, the parody about Johnny Cash or whatever. Oh um, yeah, that's right. That's with uh, John C. Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. And so I think Will Ferrell is in some funny movies, but I don't necessarily see a Will Ferrell trailer or a movie or hear about an upcoming Will Ferrell movie and get excited about it because it's Will Ferrell. Yeah. It just it just kind of all depends on if it hits with me or not. Because I think he's he's not even though you might want to say that he's kind of a typecast kind of character, he's really not. Like, he's he's different in different roles. Like, he can play a couple of different things. I'm not saying he's a huge variety comedian, mm-hmm. but there are certain roles that he's better and funnier at. He's kind of He's kind of better at the guy that you kind of see with Frank the Tank, right? He is, he's the guy who's trying to turn his life around or has yeah. it all together, but then you start to see the backslide and it all kind of falls apart. He does that really well, yeah. right? The person who kind of has it together and then it all falls apart. He does that really well. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of what is like, I mean, a little bit like his character is stranger than fiction. That's a great movie that I like bringing up that Will Ferrell stars in because he's funny, but it's a serious movie. And it's actually, mm-hmm. I think one of his absolute best acting performances because he yeah. toes that line of like, sometimes mm-hmm. he's kind of his ridiculous character, but it showed that like, I can act, I can be a serious role and, kind of step into a character that's not just like the goofy dumb lovable guy which i mean i like but i mean that's when you when all and only ever your movies like whenever they come out if that's all they are like i think you kind of i get kind of tired of that like you're just you know what you're gonna get it's kind of like the uh the vince vaughn like typecasting approach and I know you just said like Will Ferrell's not always typecasted, but I think that you kind of know what you're going to get when you hear Will Ferrell is in a movie. Just like you know, Vince Vaughn is probably just going to be playing Vince Vaughn, like he's just <laughs> playing himself in a movie. So Vince Vaughn as Vince Vaughn. I mean, he's the same character. I'm sorry to say, he's the same <laughs> fast talking, witty guy. And I, I mean, the same thing could be said for like The Rock. The Rock just generally plays The Rock in. 90% of his movies which like is okay because you know you're gonna go see an action movie just like you know you're gonna go see a comedy with a Will Ferrell yeah yeah and uh I think the rock I think the rock is at his best when he is humorous like we talked about this before right the rock's performance in both Jumanji movies yeah I only saw this. the first one but okay. yeah I, I I enjoyed his acting in it because he actually had to not be the rock. Like he was being right. funny and he was kind of being the rock, but he was also trying to be like a nerdy high schooler, which I enjoyed. Right. Yeah. Speaking of action heroes, we're going to transition here and we're going to talk about a guy who <laughs> was in a really good action movie. And then I think Hollywood decided they wanted to make him into an action star. And oh. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that it was I'm I'm torn cuz I want to say it's incredible but at the same time it's awful. And so 
So we are talking about none other than the glorious, always entertaining Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, and so for my terribly terrific, I have Nicolas Cage action films. See, Nicolas Cage was in this really good action movie called The Rock. Right, like this is a good, good action film. It's tense. It's intense, mm -hmm. and I think everyone was like, "Oh wow, yeah, we got to get this Nicolas Cage guy. He's a talented actor." And I think Nicolas Cage is a talented actor. Um, from the standpoint of, I really think he tries to become his character. Yeah, fully. Like I really do. Um, how he executes it just depends from film to film. And if you ever listen to him talk in an interview, he's hilarious to listen to talk about his acting experiences okay. um and so, <laughs> so anyway haas and i watched a couple of nicholas cage action movies over the weekend we started off by watching con air because oh, i yes. saw this was on amazon prime and i was like i have to watch this movie i haven't seen this movie since i was like 11 or 12 and back then i thought that this movie was just amazing cameron poe was just the the greatest <laughs> hero that we could ever imagine, right? This army ranger who's kind of falsely put in prison because he gets into a fight with a couple of gang members, which, you know, the story, while it's plausible, we're not letting a veteran go to maximum security prison for 10 years because he kills a guy in a street fight when it wasn't his fault. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> in the US, we're not letting that happen, okay? Mm, like,. No. We are not going to let that happen. Um, but anyway, watch this movie. And I'm just watching it the whole time. And I'm saying like, holy cow, you've got Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, John Malkovich, three actors who are all really good, Steve in my Buscemi. opinion. Uh, yeah, Steve Buscemi's in there. Yeah, Steve Buscemi's in there. Danny um, like... Danny Trejo's in there, and then who is who's the guy who plays Diamond Eyes? Um, I can't. Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames is his name, right? Um, uh, yeah, Mission Ving Rhames. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so so anyway, it's like this is these are some pretty good actors, but the the plot line of this movie from top to bottom is just ridiculous. Like oh, first yeah. of all, I want I want to talk to a you know a law enforcement professional. Do they really transport this many high security prisoners at once? <laughs> to me, that just seems just seems really dumb, right? <laughs> why why would you ever want to let these guys out of their space if you know they're a threat, right? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> so not only out of their space, but then put them all in the same like right. open <laughs> space. Exactly. With minimal security and no firearms. No <laughs> firearms. Right, <laughs> like I don't, I don't uh, get it. I don't get it. So, so from a practical side, this event should never actually happen. But from a movie side, it's like, okay, this is intense. Like this is, this is insane. And so, I think that the movie, it's one of these movies where you're like, this is ridiculous and extremely stupid, but it's entertaining, right? It's, it's oh, the yeah. whole, it's the whole uh, Russell Crowe and the Gladiator thing, right? Where you're like, mm. this is dumb. But at the same time, it's like, are you not entertained? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this scene in there, though. This is why I think Nicolas Cage action films are incredible. Because you're supposed to take an action film somewhat seriously. And, and I think Con Air intentionally throws in levity in there a lot. And mm -hmm. um, 
Gone in 60 Seconds kind of does this. Face Off kind of does this. However, there's always moments in these movies that I'm not sure if they were intentional levity, but there's a scene, a particular scene in Con Air that I just think is pure cinematic gold. And Zach, I sent you I sent you the clip to the, the YouTube clip. It is 10 seconds. You should click the link in our chat and just check it out for a second. Okay. And uh, we'll kind of let 10 seconds go by. I'll edit this out and then we'll kind of react to our audience. okay i'm watching it right now oh jeez okay the slap <laughs> okay so the context of the clip for anyone who who doesn't know what i'm talking about is so so anyway, Nicolas Cage is fighting all the bad guys on this plane, like beating the crap out of everybody, just using fist after fist, punching them out, right, and using his army ranger. There's actually a scene where he's charging towards a guy. They shoot him in the arm, and the bullet goes through his arm. He doesn't even flinch or react. You just <laughs> yeah. see, like, the bullet shoot through his arm. It's just incredible, just totally straight-faced. <laughs> and, and so then there's this one cross-dresser who's in the prison, who whose name is Sally Can't Dance, and he goes up and, and she's like trying to stop him, and he goes up to punch the person in the face, and then he <laughs> he hesitates and then slaps him, <laughs> and I'm just watching this. It's it's in the midst of a really serious scene, and I just start dying laughing, and I rewinded it and watched it a couple times, and Haas thought it was hilarious, but. <laughs> Every Nicolas Cage action film has this scene or, you know, Connor, you could say, why couldn't you just put the bunny back in the box? Right. right yeah. A couple, couple of those types of lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, they're all awful, and, but they're all kind of terrific at the same time. Gone in 60 Seconds has the infamous low rider uh -huh. um, amp up scene. <laughs> oh, dude. But th that's what makes a Nick Cage movie is these like moments of just like. What are you doing, man? Like, come on, <laughs> just punch the guy. Like, you you hesitate and then you slap him. Like, I think that's the the mark of a good. I I think it's the mark of a good Nick Cage movie is when he does something ridiculous like that. And that's oh, when you know you're. Sure. That's Absolutely. when you know you're in deep and you're like, all right, this is gonna you be know. awesome. Like, this is gonna be yeah. terrible, but I'm gonna enjoy every second of it. <laughs> But anyway, I wanted to kind of have a little fun in this segment here, and I think that we did just that. If uh, any of you have anything that you think is kind of terrible and terrific at the same time, we'd love to hear from you. Write into us. Head over to steellakestudio.com. Hit us up on that community tab, and we'll we'll read your presentation here on the podcast, and we would love to share that with our audience. Mm. Um, but at this moment in time, we're going to transition over to our main topic. But before we do, we just want to ask that if you guys get a chance to head over to steellakestudio.com, you can subscribe to our newsletter. It should pop up right when you open up that homepage. And you'll also see available there Zach's very first published novel called Nightmare at the Fair. And today... We are going to be talking about that a little bit. I'm not trying to steal, steal, steal Zach's thunder in any way, shape, or form. I'm just getting him ready for interview here because what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about his 
writing process, procedure. I wanted to do this. This is me wanting to kind of interview my friend and get his story on creating this, uh, creating this book mm. and his first journey doing it. And uh, Zach, why don't you go ahead and start by telling us your synopsis or let's just say your book blurb of the story because we don't want to give away the story because we want people to go and read it. So oh, give yeah. us your, your book blurb off the cuff. All right, so this is good. This is definitely going to be off the cuff. I should have brought it up in our little chat here, so I had some something to go off of, but we're going to do this from memory here. So story is about Chester Tallman, and it is finally his year. He's finally tall enough to ride the scariest ride at the Oakville Creek Fair, the Death Drop. This is the mother of all rides, and he's been dying year after year to ride it, but he's always been too short. This year's different, though. This year he's going to ride it. So Chester arrives at the fair, and lo and behold, wherever Chester goes, it just seems that bad luck follows him. And he is unable to ride the death drop. It is He is still too short to ride the scariest ride. Defeated and a little bit upset with himself, Chester finds himself in, in front of a massive tent. And inside the tent is a man called the Fantastic Nigel. And the Fantastic Nigel is a man who's going to grant Chester his biggest wish, his biggest desire, and that is to be taller. After giving Chester a bag of what he calls troll cookies, the Fantastic Nigel tells Chester to take one a day for the next week and he will be bigger than anyone has ever been and he will definitely be able to ride the death drop. But after consuming the first cookie, that's when the real nightmare begins. Chester starts to grow. He's growing bigger. He's so big that he can't fit in his own room and not even his own house. And Chester, as he's growing and growing, starts to suspect that he's not just growing, but he's changing into something. Looks like Chester's problems just got a little bigger. Oh, oh, oh man, that was beautiful. Was that was that really off the top of your head? That was off the top, yeah. That was incredible. That was amazing, Zach. You are you are truly a pro. Oh, stop. Um, it's, and so I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So, audience, what we're gonna do here is we're just gonna go through. I have a couple questions for Zach. I want to investigate what his story creating process was like, and we're gonna have fun with this. So, Zach, we're gonna start off by talking about your genre you've you've decided to write in. So, uh, I have written down here that you are writing in children's horror slash romance. <laughs> yes romance <laughs> definitely more children's romance than horror i'm kidding i'm kidding i just wanted to throw that in there as a little joke to start <laughs> off with. um but uh, tell me a little bit about what made you decide to go with children's horror children's horror is the genre and uh why well why you decided to go with that genre and why you're targeting middle grade yeah um so i chose horror slash scary story because it all goes back to when I started really getting into reading and this was not just reading that you had to do for school because that was to me when I was in middle school that was always the boring reading that's the reading that you had to do because there was going to be a quiz there was going to be some tests and you had to pick out the themes and the the motifs and everything from the the story and I just reading was just boring to me there was nothing exciting about it until i picked up 
my first Goosebumps book. And we did an episode on a few Goosebump books that each of us loved and kind of the influence Goosebump had on me. And it's it's resonated through my entire life. So now I'm, I'm 30 or will be 30 once this this podcast comes out. And I enjoyed just a story for the sake of the story. Um, there was sometimes a moral tied into Goosebumps, but what I enjoyed most was that there was suspense and there was some scary stuff going on. There was like some ghosts or werewolves or vampires, but they weren't the ghosts, wolves and vampires that my parents were watching or some of the older kids in high school were watching. They, they felt more appropriate for me and I enjoyed being not so much scared, but just in a suspenseful situation and figuring out, how the characters might get out and then finding out how they got out of those situations. So to answer the question in a very roundabout way, I was very influenced by Goosebumps and by R.L. Stein, And so I wanted to create a book that was appropriate for middle school kids, because I think that's the, that's to me the age before they kind of shift personalities. I think in, in my mind, middle school is the last time that you're going to be who you are for a while. Because I think once you get into high school, stuff changes, hormones hit, um, you got girls that you're now interested in, you got boys that you're now interested in, you've got sports and like social status to be worried about. And so I think for middle schoolers, it's kind of the last time that you're just completely who you are. And I wanted to write a story and then a series of stories that would just speak to that, that age group. Um, so that's the reason why I picked middle grade. I think they're the most fun to write for because it allows me to be a little more creative and it allows me to kind of just let my imagination go. Cause I think middle school is very receptive to that. I think mm-hmm. they're, open to, okay, there's a monster. I'll go with it because that's still kind of scary to me. And I like that, but you're not to that age where it's just a ridiculous idea to have a monster under the bed. I think middle school, you're still, you're still afraid of the dark. And so I, I thought that that would be the appropriate age for this story. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, goosebumps was one of those influences for you are there any other things that you would cite as inspiration, any other inspirational stories or moments in life uh, from your real life that made you kind of want to start this, this series of children's horror books? Yeah. Um, I think so for, especially for the first one nightmare at the fair, the inspiration was a few things. I think first of all, it was heavily influenced by the fair that would come to my hometown every year. And for me, going to that fair every summer was a highlight of my summer. It was when I got to see all my school friends outside of school and we got to kind of roam free. I know that's kind of unheard of now, which maybe makes the first novel here a little unrealistic. Uh, but for me, when I was a kid, I would go to the fair and my parents would be like, okay, here's some money and you can meet us here if you need us, but go have fun. And it was like, the first taste of freedom that I had was was my hometown fair. And so I really tried to bring that out in my story, that sense of lights and laughter and fun and stuff's going on everywhere. I 
that was very influential when I was when I was growing up. And so, first of all, the 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 fair that came to town, to my hometown, and then second of all, I a book that I read when I was younger that really I think and I it's definitely the first book that scared me, but also showed me that you can write for you can write seriously about problems that kids experience and that was something wicked this way comes and okay. that was this a book by Ray Bradbury and it has some similar themes to my to my story that I that I thought were very powerful um like a a fair or not a fair but a a, a character in something wicked this way comes his name's Mr. Dark but he was this kind of uh, man behind the curtain pulling all the strings. And I really like that idea. I think that's a, a powerful idea for middle school or at least young kids to, to experience like the, there's, there can be bad people out there that are kind of doing things behind the the scenes that you can get wrapped up in if you're not careful. And so that, that story really resonated with me when I was younger and I wanted to kind of pay like, respect to that that story because i think it's a really powerful story that kids should read mm-hmm. um but yeah i think those two are probably the the biggest inspirations for me when when writing nightmare at the fair awesome i you know and i love that you point that out about the fair because i felt the i felt that way as i was reading it that like oh man this tape takes me back to to time because because where I grew up we had it wasn't so much a fair it was more like our parade slash carnival affairs a little bit a little bit larger right the county yeah. fairs but I just remember kind of having the same experience where you kind of go as a family you separate and you go your separate ways and then at eight o'clock you meet up and go home. And I'm just curious. I'm curious if that's something that families still do or I feel like people with their kids try and keep them a little closer. I feel like social media has has caused us to freak out a lot more as parents because we see, quote unquote, so much more of all the terrible things that can happen, even though science and statistics tells us it doesn't happen any more frequently than it did back then we're just exposed to it more because of how fast information travels. Right. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point because I thought about that as I was writing nightmare at the fair, did I want to make it the most modern fair story or at least put the setting as the most modern. So maybe, I mean, even middle schoolers have phones, which I don't necessarily agree with, but a lot of middle schoolers do. And so that was a question I had to ask myself when writing it was, well, I mean, a middle schooler might have their phone. Uh, they might have an easy way out of any danger because it's just always on them. But I wanted to make a conscious effort to blend what maybe going to a fair for middle schoolers is now with how it was when I was a kid. And I've at the end of the day, I decided not to even mention cell phones just because I figured, hey, out of mind, out of or out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So I'm not gonna. Yeah if I just don't mention it, then it, no one will be like, well, why didn't he just call the police or whatever? And it's, I was like, well, I want to, I want to blend those two mm-hmm. like settings of how yeah. the problems of maybe a kid nowadays mixed with a fair setting of when I was, when I was a kid, but I, that's a good point. I wonder what it would be like 
nowadays. Cause I mean, I haven't obviously been to a fair in a, a long time, but mm-hmm. I, just, I can assume that a lot of kids are standing around on their phones while talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's mostly on their phones, but I feel like you did a good job of capturing for me, I read it from the perspective of what the fair would have been like as I was a kid, and I'm sure people who pick this book up and read it will probably read themselves into it from their own childhood perspective, and I think you did a good job of that, and the fair is kind of like this timeless place. Yeah. Um, but uh, next yeah. question I have for you is uh, share share with us some of the process from the conception of your idea maybe sharing a little bit of how you outlined it and write, wrote it and uh, how long did this process take for you? So let's start about, let's start with the conception of your idea. When did this, when did this come to you that you wanted to write nightmare at the fair? So this idea originally started, Oh boy, this was probably back in 2015. 14 2013 I had this idea of and I had written the first chapter actually and taken it to a writing group and had some critiques done to it and that was kind of the first time that I had actually shown my fiction to someone other than my parents or maybe probably only my parents I never even shared it with like close friends or anything but I shared it with this group and the group it was a generally received as a a good piece of writing and they thought that it had legs it had something to say and so naturally i put it on the back burner i didn't do anything with it for (laughs) for years and i but it was always in my head and i just i wanted to tell a story kind of in a goosebump style or at least from a from the reading level and the eyes of a middle schooler but I wanted to tell a story about a kid who turned into a giant or turned into a troll or became larger than life. Because I think, especially for me when I was younger, I I played basketball, I did things in, that required height, and I never had it. And I was always like, I wish I was taller. I wish I was taller. I wish I had mm-hmm. more strength to do this, or I wish I had more whatever to do that. And so I think that's a, a, a universal feeling shared amongst a lot of people is this, this desire to want something that you're maybe just genetically not predisposed to do. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, what if, what if there was a way, what if you could grow up and be bigger and could ride the ride at the fair, or it could be a great basketball player or something. And so for a while there, I just didn't touch the story until recently I, I always, I think I knew all along that this was going to be the first in my series because I think it, I thought about it the most. It had the most substance to it. It had, I had characters already thought out in my head. I just needed to put it down on paper. And so picking it up back up again, when I started to outline and started to map out and actually put some flesh on the bones of the story was probably this past summer. I started really outlining it and thinking about it and i'd never been an outliner i didn't like the idea of outlining an entire story when it was supposed to be a creative piece which i come to realize everyone does it differently every every piece of craft every or every media of of craft that i listen to uh people teaching you how to write or saying hey this is the best way to like plot out or map out a story. I 
I hear a lot of them. And at, at the end of the day, it sounds like do what's best for you. And so I think mm-hmm. when you're writing, you have to try a bunch of different things first, which is fun because you get this self-discovery aspect of writing, not just with how you write it, but how you even start it. And so for me, I was like, I'm going to try just outlining every single thing. I'm going to map out every page or every chapter and I'm going to put the the beats in it. I'm going to have the plot. I'm going to see it all. And it actually made my writing a lot easier. So mm-hmm. it probably took me about two weeks to to map out and write the entire story. And even then, I was like, I think some stuff's going to change. But I, I will say what you read is is pretty much what I had outlined. Like I didn't deviate okay. from my outline all that much. Um, which was, which was nice because I kind of always had these mile markers to look towards. And it was, it was fun. Cause I printed out the, the outline and I would put a big X through every chapter that I'd make. So like, it was fun seeing myself make progress through the book because I could physically see on my paper, my outline, I'm making, I'm making progress. I'm, cu- I'm marking off chapters Mm-hmm. So I think not to get too heavy into craft here, but I, to me, outlining is it the big positive for it for me was I didn't really have too many plot holes by the end because yeah. I had planned it all out. And so I could fill them in as I was doing the outline, as opposed to kind of writing into the dark, being a pantser, writing by the seat of seat of your pants, like you're going to probably have some plot holes by the end because you're still forming the story arcs at, as you're writing them, as opposed to already having them fleshed out. And I just got to kind of put the pieces together. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the outlining and the conception of, of that story. And as you approach that, you mentioned, you mentioned that this is a series and we've talked about it on this podcast a couple times, but if anyone's here for the first time, you are writing a series, you're planning out a series. Now, had you had the series idea in mind before Nightmare at the Fair or was Nightmare at the Fair a story idea you had and then down the line you decided that you wanted to make a children's horror series? What was kind of, how did all that work out for you? When did you decide you wanted to make a, a series of children's horror books? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I actually started with the town and then it's okay. kind of a, a different story here because I didn't have the idea of a series from the beginning. I don't really think like that. Like I'll think out of, I'll think out cool titles for books and then try to write a story based on that title. And so before all that though, I thought of the town of Oakville Creek and I actually had mapped out. It was when I was living in Korea, I decided to sit down and just map out what a a town would look like. And I was using that town in a lot of my short stories I was writing at the time. And those short stories will never see the light of day because they were garbage. But I glad I did that because I started to form this town in my head. And now coming to, nightmare at the fair i decided well i'm going to use oakville creek because it's the most familiar thing to me in my head as a setting than anything else i've created but i think that 
Oakville Creek has a lot of secrets and it's got a lot of like, it's got a lot of mystery around it. And I think that's because I wrote so many short stories that's took place in Oakville Creek. I'm kind of pulling from there because each one of those stories kind of gave a little bit of more history to Oakville Creek Mm -hmm. that I didn't know before. And so now I have this town full of mystery and secrets and intrigue that I kind of figured, well, I think there's more to be discovered here. And so that's when I started forming the idea of, well, I want to write the series that all takes place in this town, but this town is, it's big. It's not just like, you're going to like, I'm not just going to go through the buildings and be like, well, this story is going to take place in the post office and this one's going to take place in the school. And this one's going to take place here. Like Mm -hmm. there's people are going to be coming in and out of the town, but I figured it allowed me to tell a bunch of different kinds of stories and possibly blending some genres, but also still maintaining a home base for the reader. Like they still Mm -hmm. can find themselves in the town, wherever they're at, because a lot of the names of the stores and places in Oakville Creek are going to come up in further installments of the series and even kind of flesh out some of the history behind some of those, those places. But I, all that to say the original idea came from Oak, Oakville or came from me writing about Oakville Creek probably seven years ago. And nice. I decided, you know what? I got to tell this town's story and it's going to be through children's horror novels. Nice. And, and that's another thing I'm going to ask about. I've been calling it children's horror. Now your target audience is middle grade and sometimes when you're at middle grade, middle school age, in between, you know, fourth and sixth grade, you don't necessarily want to be called a child. So when you when you go about sharing this book with adults, obviously you can say it's children's horror. But if you were going to pitch this book to your actual audience, how would you characterize it? What would you what would you say? Imagine I'm a imagine I'm a fourth grader, not really into reading. How would you explain this book to to a fourth grader? Hmm. That's a good question. I would I would explain it by saying, listen, we you all of us have wanted something in our lives that we just don't have. And we've all wished for something or desired something that maybe was we knew was not particularly the best thing for us but it would be the most satisfying thing for us and i think that middle school kids middle school readers especially want to explore that and experience that and so i would pitch the book as this is a book for you because it explores the idea of you wanting something because we've all wanted something and it's, and it's it's you wanting something that potentially could go bad in the long run. So I don't know if I served that question too much justice there, but that was, that was, that was a good, good question. It caught, caught me off guard a little bit. That ah, so I don't know. See, I told you, I told you I was going to surprise you with a couple here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, at the end of the day, I would just tell them that I would frame it as a, a book for middle grade kids. I wouldn't use yeah, children's cause children's, you're right. Right. Wouldn't say that. I, I would say these are more scary stories I'll scare the pants off you, but I'm not going to give you nightmares. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and you know something I think that you do really well in this particular story, and this is why I this is where I think this is where I think it takes somebody special who can write for a middle grade student is because as adults, we just, we forget the decision-making power that we really have in those young years, right? Because as an adult, you look at kids and you're like, wow, they're just really dumb, right? Because they are, right? Compared to you, they're dumb. Kids are dumb compared to you. <laughs> and, and you know, kids don't really listen to podcasts, so I can say that, right? Yeah, right, that. right. We, we view kids as, but it's, it's an innocent and charming and lovely kind of dumb. But at the same time, when you're a kid, you constantly feel yourself growing up, getting smarter, getting wiser. And one of my favorite things in your story was just the critical thinking and decision making that you implement within the story. And and kind of the two protagonists have very different reasons and choices that they're making uh, throughout the story. And you kind of have your voice of reason and you kind of have Chester mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think that you do a good job of writing the story in such a way to where, you know, a young, a young student could pick this up and, and feel like you're not, you're, you're not looking at them as a child, but as a small independent decision maker, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 No, I, I appreciate that. Cause that is something that, I thought about while writing it is I don't want to make the characters flat in the sense of they like one just wants something and he doesn't listen to anything. And then the other one is just like, well, you're doing the wrong things. Like I think Chester and his friend Mikey are more than that. And I think they reflect a lot of what middle schoolers go through as being a middle school teacher. I, kind of saw that firsthand when I was in Korea I could see like these kids that like were very intelligent and would make decisions but I mean they were a middle schooler's decision and so the middle schooler's gonna want the troll cookies in order to turn themselves into a bigger person so they could have what they want but they're not going to think about the unintended consequences of it and so I tried to map that out in in a nightmare at the fair where I respected the middle schoolers intelligence, because I think that's the biggest thing writers, especially children's writers get wrong at times is they kind of insult their audience in the sense that I got to water this down because they're not going to get it. If I, if I talk about too many complex issues or if I make my characters seem more adult, they're not going to relate. Like I think kids like reading about both kids that are older and kids that make the decisions that they would want to make. And maybe those decisions are always a little bit like more adult like than what they Mm -hmm. would make, but they like reading about that because then they go, okay, that's, that's how I would do that. Or yeah, that's the kind of decision I would make. Yeah, I mean, kids for sure look to read and watch things where they can find a like a role model or an example in, you know, which is why I think when you write when you write a children's story, obviously you 
have kids as your main characters in your story. But I think sometimes too, people shy away from having adults as their main characters because they feel like it'll be, it won't be as relatable. But when I think about it, like kids love Star Wars and in Star Wars, they're all grown adults, right? Mm -hmm. Going on that hero's journey. Uh, As long as you can make it relatable, right? To where you can make the decisions relatable and make sense to it, to a kid. If you can make it make sense to a kid, there's a good chance that an adult, We'll probably enjoy it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we're going to move on. I have another question for you here. Um, was there ever a point in this particular project where you felt like it wasn't coming together the way you wanted it to? Um, not really. I think because I took the time and so much time at that to outline that, I like I said, I had these mile markers. I was just writing towards and as long as i kind of stayed within the boundaries of my outline which i know some writers might think is very constricting and like it's it's not the creative process at all but to me it was it was nice to have those guardrails especially for the first novel um i think a lot of people have the idea to write a novel and they want to write a novel and they start it but they never finish it and i think for those of us that are really good starters but kind of peter off towards the middle and never end up finishing anything. I think having an outline and a structure is a good walking stick to have along this path. And I think for me, the reason why I didn't really feel like it wasn't coming together the way I wanted it to was because the, because of the outline. And if I ever veered off of the outline, I always try to bring it right back. So I would kind of do a little free form, like kind of dance a little bit off the path and then come right back on. So I, I don't think I ever felt that way. I think the only thing I probably felt and still do feel if I'm being honest right now um, about the whole process was just like, you, I'm kind of a phony. Like I, you're kind of just pretending to be a writer. Like you're just pretending to be an author. And I think a lot of authors deal with that, like this imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. And I think, probably about two thirds of the way through, I would, I started to have that doubt of like, this isn't even good. Why did I just waste all this time? Like you just sat in your room writing every night for, for nothing. And I think what I learned through that is you just, you have to push through it. And for me, even now, even talking to you and talking about this is somewhat surreal to me. Um, but you take yourself, I take myself seriously enough as a writer to be like, I, I'm proud that I, I wrote this and I'm going to put it out. And it doesn't matter if it's not 700 pages or if it's, a, if it's like a, a giant, like a thick book, like it's, or whatever. Like it's, it's a story that I wanted to tell. I wrote it. I, I think it has some legs to, to reach an audience. And I, I take myself seriously as a writer now, which is, is kind of cool to say. Yeah, which, I mean, from just my perspective, too, I've learned a lot from you throughout kind of going along this whole process, you know, and getting updates from you from time to time. And I don't know if <laughs> if you guys have listened to our, our Big Fish episode, but but Zach, uh, he <laughs> he didn't share too much. Uh, about about the story with me until he was pretty much done with it, and it's because it comes from 
that famous line in Big Fish, <laughs> never show a work in progress. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I've learned a lot from from your process. And I know for for me, I can say that kind of the outlining structure has also worked with my own project. And also your book, having read it, it's it's it feels professional, right? And I would I would not tell you that if I didn't think that because I'm your friend and I want you to succeed. I would I would tell you the truth, but yeah. I'm telling you, it feels professional. It feels like this is is something that people should definitely read. I would have no trouble recommending it to anybody. Um, but I I want to ask you a question going back to something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned that. Some writers think that creating an outline takes away from the creativity of a work or the final product. And for people who are interested in wanting to know more about maybe the creative process side of things, but also for me, because I'm interested in how you'll answer this, why do you think someone would make the argument that a work loses out on its creative process if it's outlined and planned out ahead of time versus kind of written as you go. What's the what's the general argument um against outlining? I think it's a it's a mindset that people who read or I mean even people who write get into where they think rules and structure and outlining and planning ruins a creative experience. I think we have this idea in our head where we think creativity is just you're being struck by a muse. Like you kind of sit there and you wait for inspiration. And then once it hits, you got to write as fast as you can. Um, Kind of like Coleridge style where you just like you wait and you sit and you call upon the muse and you just, you write brilliantly. And I think a lot of writers, at least from my, my research and to even talking with other ones, it's, it's not even that when you're, flying by the seat of your pants. I think that's kind of the the big illusion with the whole I don't outline, I just write what like comes to me is I think you get into this place where you're not actually I'm trying how do I want to say it? You're not you're not actually being productive. You're kind of just finding the path that you need to be on. And so I think with outlining people see that as a, a less of a creative endeavor because you're not doing that searching because it's all laid out for you. It's just like a roadmap and you just got to follow it. And I think people feel like that's too rigid where people who fly by the seat of their pants feel like, well, this is inspirational. I'm, I'm searching and yeah, I might be wasting some time because I'm just writing to write, but I'm going to find that that path. And for me, I think that I think it's valuable, especially for first time writers and just anyone who's interested in it to to try an outline. Just try it. It might not be your style to map out every single chapter like I did. And I don't even know if it is still my style, if I'm being honest, because I I kind of get that yearning for that fly by the seat of your pants. But I know that I will get about halfway through and then just go, I don't know where this is going. So I think that 
I think that that notion of outlining it should it should change in writers' minds because there's a lot of value that comes from it, and I think that value comes from the fact that like at least you will train your brain and train your creative talent in the way a story should be structured. I think having kind of the the basic structure of a story at least planned out allows you to see how a story rises and falls. And the masters mm-hmm. of it, like a Stephen King, they don't, I think they have that and they do that, but they do it in their brain and just naturally. I think they do have it mapped out to an extent and they just kind of fill in the the holes to get to each plot point, which each plot point I think to them is just the next step in the overarching story plot. So for me, I think that it, I'm, I'm a huge advocate right now of outlining who knows what I'll say a year from now, but for right now, uh, outlining to me is still just as creative. It's still because you still have to come up with the outline the end of the day you still have to come up with the story you're just putting more words to the story than you would if you just were thinking of it off the cuff and to me that the, it's an equal weight when it comes to creativity because i still had to sit down and think of a creative story of a of a plot just as anybody who would writing by the seat of their pants i just chose to write it all down first and then write about it yeah you you kind of you answered exactly what I was going to follow up with by kind of saying that essentially outlining is just putting your brain activity down in a shorthanded way because because when you're just writing by the seat of your pants you can't write nearly as fast as you can think and and you can outline a lot faster than you can go through the narrative so while you're thinking rapidly the fastest way to put that story down is to to do it in shorthand outline form yeah um and i for me i think the story plays out the same way you know in in your head as as in your outline and then more it could probably more accurately be presented when you finally sit down and write that first manuscript and mm-hmm. i like what you pointed out about stephen king probably has it outlined in his head mm-hmm. um because he's kind of notoriously right like doesn't doesn't make outlines and that's probably just because he's a really good planner in his head and has a good memory. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's the fault of comparison. And I think that's also, once again, this misleading idea of creativity should only come from inspiration rather than planning. Mm -hmm. I think that first of all, to speak to the point of just like, I mean, Stephen King's a master. Like he definitely has that memory to create a story and he's done it so many times. Like, I mean, think about driving or riding a bike. Like you don't even think about it because you just know the, the routine of it. And I think for him, he's written so many stories and books that it's just, he knows the, the feeling even of how a book should go. And it just so happens that feeling is also the structure of a plot. And yeah, he plays around with it and stuff, but generally he has the same structure. And I, I I'm interested to, ask you the same question because I remember your, your outlines, especially from high school and stuff, you would have the most detail, like a Bible of outlining on some of our stories and stuff that we would work on. And I know with your, with some of your creative endeavors and your projects now you're outlining, but uh, uh, do you, 
map out like how, how much how much outlining do you do per chapter because i would have like a bullet point that would say like chester um chester arrives at fair he goes to death drop um finds out he's too short and i just kind of fill in the the scene from there but i'm interested how detailed you get uh, yeah, my outlines are a little bit more detailed than that. Probably a little less detailed than they were way back in the day. Um, but so when when I've outlined my my stories, so right now I'm working through uh, my Christmas story, and the outline I would say is is moderately detailed. But for me, when I think through a story, um, the scenes come to me in my head and it's kind of like a film reel plays out. And then mm. I jot down what I need to jot down in order to remember that scene that played out. And then things that work, I keep and things that don't work, I scrap. Like there's uh, basically I write a chapter is a scene to me. Right. And then yeah. I move I move from chapter to chapter and I have a certain place that I want to be. And however many chapters it takes to get there, I outline that out. And for me, it's made the process a lot better um, just because when I sit down and write, I don't, I don't have to be confused on where the chapter's starting and where it's going to go. I just, I know where it's going to go and I fill it in with the fancy elaborate language, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, yeah, the, the words I want to use to construct that scene and. And so I think about it that way. I don't know how you, how do you visual, how do you visualize it first? Cause I know for me, I'm a, for me, all of my stories, they play out in my, my head, like a movie, like, and even with the Haggard Odyssey, my podcast, I, I imagine them as if they were kind of episodes of a TV show. And, and then I translate that into, if I were going to be speaking in front of a group of people and tell, telling about this, how could I best describe it? Uh, so how, how do you kind of go from concept to paper? How does it first come to you? Yeah, I think it's similar to you where I see it playing out in my head like a movie. But when I'm first getting the idea down, it's more like snapshots or very brief moments of a scene that mm -hmm. I think, oh, that would be cool. Or, oh, that's interesting. And I write that down and there's no chronological order really to it. It's just scenes that I think would be cool in the, in the book. And then from there, I see where they might like fall in line on like in the plot. And then I try and think of what is the most interesting thing next? Like, and for me, it's cool and maybe a little corny, but I get to go, what would be cool for a middle school boy or girl to see next like what would i have thought is cool or fun or exciting in a book and then that's what i write next so i don't i try not to have scenes where there's just exposition where it's just like just figuring out what to do next kind of deal i i know i have a, like maybe one or two of those maybe maybe just one in my in, in nightmare at the fair, but I try and end it then on a twist. And that was the thing that I really tried to drive at in my book was like these scenes playing out where they would leave off in a cliffhanger or a twist that would kind of push you on towards the next cool scene. And yeah, I think that in my head, they, they, they're very similar like film reel style, but it's, it's a lot more muddled and I kind of have to, mm -hmm. to see, I have to 
pull the the film reel out and kind of look at each scene and go, okay, which one's cool? What what would be really cool for a middle schooler? Okay. Yeah. 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 So similar similar process. Um, I'm just looking here to give you a point of reference. So like an outline to one of my chapters is about 150 words. So I use about 150 words to. Okay. Yeah. You really, I would, for me, I would say you really map out your, your chapters. For me, it's maybe 50 words and that's really pushing it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I do. I do brief bullet points and I don't know. I, like I said, I don't know if that's, Everyone's got their own style, man. It, that's when this all comes down to. It's like no book is written the same way. Because if there was, everyone would do it. Everyone could write it. And we would just be swimming in a world of mediocre stories. But I we're think almost there. we're <laughs> getting close in some areas. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But I think, I think the fact that the creative process is so different for everybody. Because there's some people who maybe we'll reverse outline where they write half a novel and then they have to outline backwards going from the ending to where they are in order to figure out how to get there. And so there's people that do that. There's people that are like you that really plan out their not like their chapters. And then there's people who will even write the entire book synopsis, like detailed 150 pages basically wrote the book but they were just telling it to themselves so that they could go back in and tell it more creatively. So mm. the, the styles go from not, no plan whatsoever. I'm going to write by the seat of my pants. And when the muse strikes to, I'm going to write the entire book first and then I'm going to write the book. Oh just, man. Yeah. That'd be a stressful process for me. I can't, I, I like, could not think of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. I like outlines quite a bit. Um, but I'm coming from a I'm coming from a public speaking background where you research, you come up with a big idea and a thesis, then you come up with your points to support that thesis. Mm-hmm. And I approach writing a story a very similar way because um, I start off with my introduction and conclusion, and then I fill in the middle. Um, yeah, so not sure if that's the best way to go about it. It just seemed to be what worked for me and we'll see if it turns out to be any good, but this isn't about my stories, my friend, this is about you. Um, and we're going to, we're going to rattle off our final, final interview question topic here. Since you were a young lad, you've wanted to write a book. I feel like I should have said that in like an Irish accent. (laughs) Since, since you were a young lad, you wanted to write a book. (laughs) All right. Hey, the day has come. Uh, share with our audience ultimately why you decided to go the route of independent slash self-publishing instead of traditional. Because I know, like anybody who's a- has storytelling aspirations, there's that dream of one day seeing your name on that front shelf of a bookstore, right? Like that's everybody's dream. That's yeah. the ideal dream. And going the route that that you've decided to go is makes it a lot harder but who knows in 10 years bookstores could be gone um yeah for all we know yeah and so so what was your inspiration motivation and desire to go down the independent self-publishing route because i know this is something we've talked about a lot and and i 
kind of know where you stand. But for our audience who hasn't heard you talk about this too much, what was ultimately the reason why you've decided to go independent, self-published? I think, I th- well, I th- there's a few things I want to say. And I want to first talk about Steel Lake Studio because to me, us starting Steel Lake Studio gave me kind of the kick in the pants to do this. And I, I really don't think that without us starting this and the podcast and everything, I don't think I ever would have gone this far with self-publishing just because I know myself. I, I get to a point where I, I want to finish the story or I have, but then I'm too afraid to show it and share it with the world. And I think, thanks to steel like studio and to, to us starting this, like it, it gave me the, I guess for lack of a better word, the courage to really try this is like the self publishing. And so first wanted to say that about steel like studio, but I, I think the reason why I started down the independent slash self publishing route was because any more like, dude, it's 2020. Like we have all the tools at our disposal that the big five publishers have, and we can make our products and our businesses as professional as big name publishers. And I think that was at the forefront of my mind as to why I wanted to do indie publishing, because first of all, I wanted control over my own content. I didn't want I didn't want a an editor telling me like, well, based on market research, this is not going to really strike home because everyone's on vampire romance novels right now. And like, you're writing a middle grade horror story, like go back to 1990. Like I didn't want, I wanted to write (laughs) stories that first of all were good. Like there was a hungry market out there. And I believe that like children's horror or middle grade horror is a market that hasn't been fed in a very long time. And I think it's a hungry market. Secondly, I wanted to write what I wanted to write. And I don't want to say that as like in arrogance, I want to say it as everyone has stories that's going to hit and resonate with certain people. And I think that for me, self-publishing was the way to directly go to the 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 group of people in the market that I wanted to to go for. And so yeah. I think self-publishing shouldn't be looked at as like these like poorly made like just serial pulp stories coming out. I think that was at first, I think in the early 2000s or I mean I guess the early 2010s is really when like indie authoring started getting off the ground. I think back then it was like anybody who wrote any short story ever was publishing. And it was just like the market got saturated. It looked bad because the stories were not edited. They were not even good stories or even stories worth telling. I think Mm -hmm. that now we have professional indie authors. Like there are people that are making their livelihood from doing what we're doing. And I think that all, like I said at the beginning of this is all the tools are at our disposal. 
like anything we want to do, like we can make our books look as professional as we want. We can make our audio books as professional as we want. Like we can contend with a market now and with a, with a business that is just as professional, like that, that's a big name publisher. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to do, to do indie publishing because I think for me, it was, it felt right. It felt like this was something that I could do and I could do well, especially with your help. Yeah. And, and I think that that's been a huge thing for, for me as well too, is the, the accountability. I, I, and I would suggest anybody who wants to kind of do this route, having a friend who you're working alongside really helps you get your stuff done. Like it's just really oh, yeah. because you got to answer to somebody at the end of the week. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's awesome. You know, I really, I really have enjoyed this and I've enjoyed seeing your work develop in, I'm doing this podcast. I'm so excited for our audience to be able to experience nightmare at the fair. Uh, this is, this is exciting stuff. Um, but you, you know, I said this was going to be our final question, but uh, I'm going to do one last one because this kind of came to me as we were wrapping up. But if you were to say, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but <laughs> if you were to say, if there's a character, if someone picks up the book, Nightmare at the Fair, if there is a character in the story who you enjoyed writing the most or creating the most, mm. who should the audience be looking out for who they could just say, like, Zach just had a super fun time creating this character? Ooh. I think my favorite character to write was the fantastic Nigel. Okay. Yeah, I really <laughs> yeah. enjoyed the sinister slash... Like he's not, he's bad, but he's also not all like, I mean, I don't want to spoil the book, but he, he was the most fun for me because I kind of got to bring a little, a hint, a hint of Stephen King into the story that was still age appropriate. That wasn't going over the top, but I wanted to write a kind of more adult, serious villain because I think middle schoolers can see adults like that sometimes and i think it was just being more accurate to what an adult villain might be to a middle schooler so for me yeah. he was definitely the most fun um because i think he's he's crafty he's he's always thinking of something beyond what the other characters might be thinking he's always got something cooking so he i he was a lot of fun for me it was a little bit of myself in the not in the sense of like, I'm a bad guy, but like I got to tease some things that will be coming later because I knew mm -hmm. what was going to happen. And so at the same time, the fantastic Nigel also knew what was going to happen. So that was, that was a fun, always fun scenes for me. All right. Well, everyone, as you pick up nightmare at the fair, be sure to pay extra special attention to fa the fantastic Nigel. And we're going to make this super duper easy for you. We're going to put it right up on our homepage. 
So you just go to steellakestudio.com and Nightmare at the Fair and all the links to get it are going to be plastered all over there. So as soon as this podcast drops, it will be available. It will be up. We're going to make it super duper easy. So steellakestudio.com is where you're going to want to go. It's going to be right on the homepage and you're going to want to pick up Nightmare at the Fair. Zach, is there anything else you would like to close out with before we say goodbye? Just pick up Nightmare at the Fair. I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you all for just being on this journey with Steel Lake Studio and with me through my my first novel. It's It's been a lot of fun. It's been nerve-wracking, but at the same time, very rewarding. And so I, I also want to just tease the next book coming out. I'm not going to say much more about it other than there will be a second book coming out, but stick stick with the the series guys it's going to be a good one but pick up nightmare at the fair first get your little taste of of the terror town series all right guys be sure to check it out thank you for listening to parallel quest we will see you next time bye-bye bye Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Parallel Quest. Please be sure to head over to steellakestudio.com and check out Zach's book, Nightmare at the Fair. We think that you are going to love it, that you're going to like it. Please head over to steellakestudio.com. We want to thank Jake Butler for providing our bumper music, and we will see you next time on Parallel Quest. <laughs>